going and focusing on that, building an industry solution, figuring out ways to go to market that are different, moving more to a pod concept rather than individual lines of business. All of those things were just, they were kind of new and it was exciting and fun. And I got to experience all of that. So I always have enjoyed math. So I approach things similar to the way you approach any math equation, where you have a set of variables that are known and some unknown variables and you isolate each and, and then solve. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there. You are listening to Revenue Insights. Today, I'm joined by four-time CRO and six-time COO, Stephen Birdsell. He's been leading vision, strategy, and execution for all facets of sales from some of the largest companies such as Click, Oracle, Anaplan, and SAP. Stephen, it's a pleasure to be able to chat with you today. Thank you, Lee. Look forward to the conversation. So you've got a pretty glittered, I'd say, kind of career background. And I know when we were talking beforehand, I probably haven't done it justice either. So in your own words, and for everyone listening, could you give a bit more context on your story and how you've got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. I'll just take a few minutes and give kind of a high level flyby of 25 years <laughs> in the business. So I started my career at a company called Diebold, which makes everything essentially that a bank needs. ATMs, drive-through banking equipment, vault doors, new you know safe deposit boxes, everything. So I started there. I was an individual contributor. Was selling at an eight million dollar quota with an average price of like thirty thousand dollars. So a lot of transactions, a lot of business. Loved it. I absolutely loved it. And made winner circle every year. And after three or four years of that, our CEO asked me to take on a new role to lead our commercial business, which was non-existent. <laughs> and so because we just sold into banks, he felt that there was a real market opportunity to apply our technology into other markets that were more commercial-based rather than banking. So I was a team of one and went out and we created two incredibly fun, fast growth businesses. One was there was this idea that we had drive-through banking and you know throughout the US, it's very common to have four or five lanes of drive up at a bank because a lot of the transactions, you know, happen. And I think it's much less so now because people just don't typically go to banks much, but there's still a drive-through. And the idea that I had was, the concept was applying that to a different market. And the first thing that came to mind was pharmacies. What if you applied that drive-through concept to a pharmacy where a mother or father with a sick child can come and not have to go through the store with their children, but have the ability to get their pharmaceuticals delivered in their vehicle. And we felt like that was going to be a good application of the same technology we already had, the pneumatic tube units, you know, et cetera, and the drawer that comes out. I literally went around with a pneumatic tube unit, my laptop, and met with CVS, Rite Aid, Walgreens, all the major pharma companies. Walgreens was the first to buy, and then everybody else tends to follow. And I think we did like $20 million business, and it was so fun that I learned a lot about myself that while I'm very entrepreneurial, I like doing it within the confines or comfort of another of a business that I don't have to kind of go risk my entire family investments on a thought or an idea, but that I could actually apply it in a company in a surrounding that already has products and technology, but I can still at least exercise that entrepreneurial spirit that I have. And so I just tell you the story because that's what started my career and my thinking of, and I think where I've spent most of my career in high growth, scaling businesses, taking new ideas to market, but growth and scale, like that's my mantra. At the same time, I think probably have expressed interest to the audience. In 2001, I started SAP and at SAP at the time, there was no such thing as an operations team. And so myself and a couple of other people had the concept that we should create what essentially is sales operations that people that are running budgeting and planning and territories and quotas and 
all the things that we know now today, but they didn't really exist before. In fact, we had to go convince our head of the guy who was running North America that it was an important role that should be filled. His thought was that we should just go hire an MBA and somebody without experience and let them go do it. And we said, no, you need a combination of somebody who's operational, but who's also you know, got the right kind of intellectual capacity to do that kind of work. And so we started it. And now, of course, enterprise software companies have sometimes hundreds of people in operations. But I would say the onset was in the with that 2000 range. So I had a blast doing that. Essentially, you know, I was what became the chief operating officer. And the idea would be that all of the non-sales functions report into the chief operating officer. So things like pre-sales or consulting, marketing, partner ecosystems, value engineering, industry experts, all of those different non-sales teams that are absolutely essential to go to market, they would report into a COO. And then the general manager, the president or senior vice president, whatever the role is, would run all the sales organization. And together, the team would be a collaborative environment, obviously, that is deeply operational, but also very sales-centric. And so that's what essentially I did, started in North America at SAP, eventually moved to Japan. I was a COO in Japan and then uh, moved to Singapore, did it across Asia Pacific, moved to Miami, did it across Latin America, and then back to Philadelphia where I did it globally. And then that was the first, I would say, half of my career at SAP. And the second half was spent as the guy running the business, the general manager on a global basis. And I ran at SAP businesses like our business by design, the OEM business, managed cloud as a service. And then I got to exercise that entrepreneurial spirit again when I uh, started the rapid deployment solutions uh, business, where we started with about a 20 million euro investment from the board. And the idea, the concept was to package our software together with services in a defined scope at a fixed price for the implementation along with assets like accelerators, configuration guides, and ways to implement the software fast. And so the model was you could buy anything you wanted from SAP and be live in 10 weeks or less at a fixed fee for the implementation. And the only variable was the number of licenses that you need. That business grew to a billion euro in two and a half years. It was amazing at how fast to go from nothing to a billion euro. We had an amazing ride. There's an NCAD business case, in fact, that was written on how we created the business and started it and then grew it at scale like that. So lots of uh, fun on that. I can share that with you as well, Lee, if, if you want, and certainly welcome to read through that. And then if anybody in the audience wants it, I think NCAD has a copyright on it. So you'd have to kind of get it through NCAD. But anyway, that was my, my SAP career. Having done virtually every job at SAP, at least that I had aspired to, and not wanting to make lateral moves, I then left and just quickly, I went to companies like Hearst, which was a big media company. They had a technology division. So I was there for a couple of years and ran one of the businesses and then left and went to a company owned by private equity that was local here in Philadelphia called Radial. It used to be GSI Commerce, started by Michael Rubin, and then he sold it to eBay. eBay then sold it to private equity and the private equity was two firms out of Chicago and they were looking to eventually turn the business and sell it after they bought it. And, and so 18 months after I got there, we sold it to Belgian Post. From there, I left and became CRO, Chief Revenue Officer at Anaplan. We were, were past an early, early stage, but it was owned by several private equity firms. And the idea was to create a business planning market, which we did. Felt that it was a huge TAM and a great opportunity, and somebody hadn't really focused on that part of enterprise software. So we did, went public in 2018. So I got to go through that whole process. I got to get on the New York Stock Exchange and ring the bell and all those fun things that you get to do and going through a public offering. Was there for a couple of years and then left and went to Oracle, ran the HR business across North America at Oracle. Uh, Really enjoyed that and then left and went to Click to go back into my CRO roots and became the CRO at Click where we were owned by Toma Bravo, another private equity and I recently just left that role in at the end of June to now go focus on being a CEO. I'm kind of in between things, enjoying my summer and a lot of time with my family, but I'll get back into the throw of things, I'm sure, sometime in Q4. But 
that's my story. Amazing. And uh, yeah, I mean, as in the middle of your break at the minute, so really appreciate your time. And there's so many ways that I feel I could follow up from that experience and and we'll definitely get into it. But the one that really came up to me that I'm going to ask is quite an open question, but you mentioned at the very beginning that your experience really has been in high growth scaling businesses. For those listening that are likely in software and startups and the like, you know, that's a very familiar place to be. And the challenge always is how do I consistently hit my target? You know, how do I consistently hit my growth goals and to do that in a scalable way? So what I want to ask is from your perspective, what would you say maybe the the secret to that is? What are the fundamental parts of creating a sales team, creating a sales function that can consistently scale? It's a great question that doesn't have an easy answer. It's a very complex question because every business is very different. Some are high growth businesses and some, quite frankly, are low growth businesses that are focused on EBITDA. And so it really depends on the business. Not every business is a growth and scale business. Some are mature businesses that are looking, they'd love to grow, but they're in a market that's saturated or they're in a situation that's very, very difficult to grow at 20, 30, 50%. They're just not going to be able to do that. So you have to be able to manage both sides. And I would say, again, a lot of my experiences is in both of those environments where you have a great idea, it's a $100 million business, or in the case of RDS, it doesn't exist but it's, you know that there's an opportunity there. So you've done all the analysis, you've looked at the market opportunity, and you see that there's something there. There's a lot of things that are really important that are fundamentals that you have to have in place in order to have a growth and scale company. And I would say like, that's the very first thing that I look for in a business is, do you have the foundation to grow? You have the foundational elements and tools and assets that you need so that you can meet the market opportunity. Because I think there's a lot of businesses that I've experienced where you come in and they don't have the tools. They don't have a sales methodology. They don't have a CRM, believe it or not. You know, at SAP, it was early days and we didn't even really have our own CRM system. We had what we called marketing information system, which is like a green screen, you know, technology is a long time ago. You have to get the foundations in place first. And once you do that, then you can, you'll be in a position to kind of grow and scale. Starting the RDS business from scratch at SAP is an example where there's no team. There's um, literally nothing there, no systems to support it. There was no SKU for the software. The packages had to be built. So you literally are in the concept stage. But at the same time, I knew that there was three elements of the business that we had to get. There was sales. There's a partner ecosystem and there's consulting. So those three fundamentals, like you have to have those three business lines in order for you to build any enterprise software business. And so I hired a head of global sales, a head of global partners, and a head of global consulting. It was incredible. And I would say one of the, we had a myriad of successes, but one of the things that I really am proud of is not a single person left the business. They weren't fired and they didn't leave, didn't quit in the two and a half, three years that I was running that business. And I love that. I think that says a lot about the opportunity. When you create an opportunity like that and people are capitalizing on it and they're having fun and you're growing and scaling, like we ended up having quarterly quotas because we were blowing it out. Like every quota that we got every quarter, we were blowing it out and they couldn't give an annual quota anymore. They had to move it to quarterly quotas. And you can imagine how well that sits with sales teams. Like, give me an annual quota and I'm going to go blow it out. Like people like to do that. We were still blowing out the quarterly quota. It was just a plus to be in that kind of environment. Anaplan was growing, like I said, at high grade growth rates as well, which was a lot of fun. And, you know, you're trying to double and triple the sales organization. You're focused on the operational aspects. You're building budgets to meet that growth. You're getting investments and collaborating with a CFO around where we want to invest in the business and how we need to scale it. So all those different functions or facets of go-to-market, creating a value engineering team from scratch, going and focusing on that, building an industry solution, figuring out ways to go to market that are different, moving more to a pod concept rather than individual lines of business. All those things were just, they were kind of new and it was exciting and fun. And I got to experience all of that. So 
I always have enjoyed math. So I approach things similar to the way you approach any math equation, where you have a set of variables that are known and some unknown variables and you isolate each and, and then solve. And business is a lot of that as well. You have to isolate things that you don't know and then solve for those things that are the highest priority or the most complex in business. And that's why I think having a combination of operational experience along with sales experience is that's what you need in businesses today to grow and scale. You've got to have a good balance of the two. Just a quick reminder, and then we will be right back to the show. At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top-performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go-to-market teams. Every week, we speak to the brightest minds, and every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't want to miss out, sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. The link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. And that's where I'd love to dig in a little bit more. You mentioned previously that you brought in what became really an operations role, was it 20 or so years ago? So really been on the journey of sales ops going from being nothing into really what it is today. And so from your perspective, what role would you say it plays when in your sales teams, when you're leading them? I think you mentioned previously that that was kind of, you had a lot of your marketing and teams and so on reporting into the COO and then sales sitting separately. So for example, is that still the case? I'd love to understand how you think about the structure of it and how those really two functions play together. I think it exists pretty much throughout the entire enterprise software business today. Every business now sees the role of revenue operations and sales operations as an extremely important, essential part of the business. I don't think that CEOs today would even consider not having an operations team. Whereas again, we had to, at the very beginning, we're having to convince the sales leadership that this is something, it's a function that's needed. So the essential nature of that, while it has evolved and grown, where it used to be called sales operations, we then changed it to more business operations because it's not only sales operations, but it's consulting and marketing and partners. So since the breadth of it grew, we evolved it to business operations. And then now today, I think it's more commonly known as revenue operations. Most companies call it that because it's all about all facets or aspects of the revenue. So I think it's certainly evolved over the last 25 to 30 years that I've been around it. Today, when you look at the way quotas are set, the way territories are designed, the function of the organization, the way pricing and packaging works, like these are all deeply, deeply operational things. And you have to have really, really solid leaders in those sales operations roles or revenue operations roles that function. The smarter they are, the more experienced they are the better the company runs. And, you know, in fact, I remember one of the primary naysayers in those early days at SAP. I remember one time our general manager that I was reporting to had to, he was, I think, on vacation or for some reason was out of the office. And I had to present the QBR, the quarterly business review. At the end of it, I remember him saying verbatim, you guys are worth your weight in gold. And this is the person who a year or two earlier was saying that this is like, I don't even know why you guys want to have this. So I think once the position is established and once the value uh, has been created, I don't think that there's a company today that wouldn't, in enterprise software, that wouldn't consider having a revenue ops function. It just doesn't, it's not even a thought. And so I like that. I like that I've been able to see that whole evolution throughout my career and just see how things are evolving today, which Again, if you're in enterprise software, you know everything is at a, an absolute earth-shattering pace. It is just a, the demands on your time far outweigh your capability or the time in a day to deliver on everything that you want to do. There's always 10 other things that you need to do, and you're just constantly, constantly working at it in a tornado. Those are all extremely important aspects, but I think in my experience, having gone through that whole evolution... When I go into a company, I know exactly what I need to look for. I need to know, I know what I need to do to scale the business. I know what I need to do in terms of product orientation, market opportunity, capitalizing on markets, all those things I'm very, very comfortable with now, but it's lots of scars on my back to, with experience to prove the failures 
the things that didn't work as well as all those things that did work. So yeah, it's been a fascinating career experience for sure. And I would love to ask then, from an operational perspective, you kind of listed off a bunch of different ways and and roles that operations plays. In your mind, what would you say is the one initiative in your career that you've run that you're most proud of that had the biggest success on the business that you're working with at the time? It's like uh, saying, which is your favorite child? (laughs) It's a hard thing to do, but I would say kind of a few things come to mind. Certainly the rapid deployment solutions business. I mean, I doubt that I ever have a time in my career where something can go from virtually nothing to a billion euro in two and a half years. Like it's, that's unheard of. And it was unique in that situation and time. And like, there was a lot of elements that came together where we were able to do that. But certainly that was just an amazing professional and personal experience that I learned so much about myself, about the company, the market and everything else. That, that was certainly an experience. I would say another is one of the things that I really, really enjoy doing is developing people, talking about people's careers, mentoring people in the way that I still mentor today. Like I have lots of people that I just literally mentor, some that just connect on LinkedIn and others that I've known professionally, but I really, really enjoy developing people, finding talent and exposing complexities to people and challenging them and giving them opportunities to really kind of grow and thrive. Like I'm anything but a micromanager, but I also, with all of my experience, am able to kind of share and and glean from those experiences with people who are really, really excited about their career and the prospects of moving up in an organization and things like that. And so I love to talk about, you know, careers and development. And I'd say every company had different aspects of that. But one experience that comes to mind was, I would say one of the first things you do as a CRO is you, and it'll seem very natural and intuitive. I would say it's not common, believe it or not. And that's the first thing you do when you're CRO is you go look for the successful salespeople. And every company has them. There's people that have been around for a few years who are wildly successful. And you talk to them and you find out what's going well, how they were able to be successful, what they do to you know focus on the business, how they learned to be successful at that particular company. Most people are successful, find a way to be successful no matter where they go. And so I just interview them and I'll go talk to the top 10 or 20% of the salespeople and dig into why they were successful. And again, what you glean from those conversations is completely invaluable. And you look for attributes coming out of that. What are the things in common across all of those different people? What are the very common aspects that they have in the way that they sell? And then you look to replicate that as fast as you possibly can. They'll tell you things that are wrong with the business. It could be, again, operational things. It could be territories. It could be quotas. It could be, there's, again, a, a thousand different variations of problems that they all face. But you walk away with 20 or 30 conversations, the top three or four things that everybody just says that needs to get fixed. And I view myself as a CRO, as the enabler of the sales teams to grow at scale. Like my job is to make sure that they're successful. And that's it. There's certainly top line responsibilities, there's EBITDA, but my job, my focus is to help salespeople be successful. That's it. And so I'm more of a servant leader where I try to get out in front and spend time with them and help them find ways to be successful and completely knock down the impediments or roadblocks that are getting in their way. That's how I focus. And as part of it, if I marry all of that together, developing people, mentoring people, identifying the top salespeople and what their problems are and the challenges that they're faced with and solve for those things. Again, isolating the known and unknown variables. That's how I kind of approach any business. And as a four-time CRO, like that's the best way that I've found to really uncover where you can grow and scale the business. Because every business, like I said, is quite different in the challenges that they're facing. Some are high growth and some are low growth. And you have to be able to operate in any of those environments. There's a lot of downsizing that's going on over the last 12 or 18 months. It's important to be able to manage to the downside as well as to the upside. Uh, It's not an easy thing to do. It's very, very difficult because one is exciting and fun and the other is not as much fun, (laughs) you know, and is more challenging and very personal. And of course, as a CRO, like I've had to let people go 
I've been let go. So those are things that are just natural parts of the evolution. And I think the most important thing that we can all do is embrace, just embrace that experience and realize that we all come out of it on the other side in a much better position. And our careers are just in a much better place in the way that we approach those problems, the way that we solve our own personal issues, the way that we think about those experiences in retrospect are all the things that we could all write books about because it's just fun to go through that experience. So like I've said, I've had an amazing career. I've been very, very fortunate to have some very, very strong mentors who believed in me, who have put me in a position to be successful. And I couldn't have done it without them. And that's why I enjoy mentoring people so much myself today, because it was given to me. I'm trying to pay it forward as, as much as I possibly can, 10, 20, 30 fold. Those are all things that I think are important. But that's a complex question. There's no simple, easy answer to it. But I think all those experiences are part of what makes us who we are today. I appreciate my next question could be quite subjective, but I'm to the point that you're making there. Those to your mentees, the ones that you've been speaking to, you, you mentioned around talking to identifying who your performers are and understanding what it is that they're doing and what is being successful. What would you say are perhaps some of the common traits, attributes, techniques that successful sellers are doing, certainly more so in recent years, to particularly at times when the economy is tough as it, as it has been over the past 12 months, what are those uh, common trends that they are doing that's helping them to stand above the rest of the uh, of their peers? One is, I think one of the most important things we can all have is a positive outlook. E even in a business that's declining, there's market opportunity. And I think the way that we think about our business, the way we think about our opportunity will manifest itself in the results. I really do. And I think that there's people who are in a position where, again, you could have been let go of a company. You could be in a position where your quota has doubled or tripled and your territory has shrunk. Every single one of those are opportunities. And the mindset that successful people have is one of capitalizing on the opportunity not focusing on the negative or the things that woe is me, but somebody who just says, oh my gosh, this is an opportunity. What a great time to be in the market. When people have lost their jobs, what happens? If you have the mindset of growth, you're like, hey, less salespeople means I've got a bigger territory. I've got a bigger opportunity and my quota probably hasn't grown. And the company is completely focused on trying to grow the business back and recover. What an opportunity. What a great opportunity. So, or if you were let go, what a great opportunity to find something now that you really are passionate about, where you can be more selective and you know finding things. So I think that mindset of successful people, regardless of where they are, they take that mindset with them into those new opportunities and they figure out how to be successful. They are all hardworking. Like these are people that are relentless, that wake up every morning, don't need to be told what to do. They pound the phones, they work their network. They are engaging with customers. They are constantly trying to find ways to be successful. And they're just relentless in that. People that aren't, that don't have that level of work ethic, either they're not successful or they found success to be sporadic. Maybe they were in the right place at the right time. But the consistent leaders, the consistent performers are those who have an incredible work ethic, a positive mindset and outlook, and figure out how to capitalize on the opportunity. It's as simple as that. So when you're with people who are naysayers and negative, let them go. Let the toxic people behind you. Like, Don't give in to those conversations. Don't let it take away from your own mindset. And successful people don't. They go focus on other things. Like as a CRO, for example, you have successful people. You have people that are moderately successful, but who have incredible mindset and opportunity, and they just need to be developed. And then you have the underperformers. And so I think the thing that you really have to do in, when you think about somebody you need to put on a performance improvement plan, for example, you do that with one of two things in mind, either one, to move them out of an organization, or two, to make it really clear the things that they need to do to show how they can be successful. And maybe it's teaming them up with and mentoring with one of the successful salespeople. Maybe it's just go focus 100% of your time on growing a pipeline. Maybe it's like there's so many different things that you know you can do. Performance improvement plans are an opportunity 
to capitalize on somebody who has great potential but just isn't performing. Either they don't know how, they don't have the experience, they don't know what to do. You have to help them. And again, then you just have people that are wildly successful either because of the experience or their mindset or who they are, their work ethic, things like that. And so those three categories are important because people that are underperforming who don't have the potential, you just have to move them out. They're not happy. You're not happy. They need to find a profession that they can be successful in and help them find an opportunity. Maybe it's within the company. Maybe they're more of an ops person. Maybe they're more consulting. Maybe they're more customer success. Like it doesn't mean they're, they're bad people. It just means that they don't have the mindset to be in sales. Like this is a grueling job, as we all know, like holding a quota, being accountable, like in every 90 days you're measured. That's not for everybody. Not everybody can deal with that kind of pressure. And then there's those of us who thrive on it, who just absolutely are compelled by being in that environment that just love that pressure. And so I think you have to have that right mindset. And all of my experiences have shown that those are the consistent things that people have who are wildly successful. It's people that have that mindset and they just find ways to be successful no matter what environment they're in. Now, I know in in the next role that you're looking at to be a CEO is looking upwards, but I want to ask if you were to, let's say, some cruel twist, twist of fate, and actually you started from the bottom again as a enterprise seller, how would you approach it? What would your approach be, you know, having lived and breathed it for the last 20 years? One is to be very analytical and have an insatiable appetite for reading and trying to understand whatever the market is that you're in, really understanding what's the competitive environment, what does the market landscape look like, what products or solutions are out there, what are the new innovations that are coming out. I mean, everybody's talking today about generative AI right, or AI or machine learning, we are at its absolute infancy in terms of the opportunities. And there's going to be an amazing number of companies that are going to grow and fail focused on generative AI. It's That's the market opportunity. So if I was starting over, I would be looking at that and saying, what does that landscape look like over the course of the next five to 10 years? I recognized early on that the role of sales operations was going to be an essential role. And that it was absolutely an imperative. And personally, I'm very analytical. I'm very, you know, I love complexities. Like I thrive in complexities and problem solving. And I knew that that if I could find it, an environment like that, even though we had to create it, finding a way to create it was important to convince the sales leadership that this is an important function. Because I knew that that's where the growth was going to come out of businesses. And then, of course, it put me in a position to get back into more of the sales leadership. Today, I would say if I was starting over, I would look at this market opportunity around generative AI and revenue operations and how companies need to grow and scale, where private equity is putting their money, where they're investing, where companies that are going public, where it's few and far between today in enterprise software. There's so much opportunity that's out there right now, Lee, that you have to look at those things and find what's exciting you, what, where you're going to be successful because where you're passionate about something and you really love being in that environment, you can thrive. And so that's where I would be. If I was starting over again, it would be, how do I capitalize on generative AI and enterprise software? And what does that evolution look like? As a, I'm in search of a CEO role. What do you think I'm looking for? I'm looking for companies that are founder-led, that the founder is a great technologist. They've built this business from scratch. It's reached 100 million or 150 million. And they just need somebody to come in and grow and scale it. They need somebody with a deep level of go-to-market experience, somebody who's very operational, which I think there's a lot of sales leaders who are successful in sales that don't have the operational chops. They've been surrounded by people like that. But that's why I want to be CEO is because I feel like my best is yet to come. I feel like I want to put myself in an environment where I can take all of those experiences I had and then apply it as a CEO, to develop people, to develop product, to develop market opportunity, to capitalize on all that, all the experience I have in private equity. Like those are, to me, that's an exciting time is to think about generative AI and what does that look like? And every company's thinking about it and how are they going to capitalize on it? That's what really excites me. And so, of course, having a global opportunity and growing and scaling, you know, things globally, having worked and lived in every part of the world, like that's my future. So I am, I would say at the beginning of my career, again, 
because it's a whole new role as a CEO. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know where I'm going to end up talking to a lot of private equity companies now, but I'm pretty comfortable in being uncomfortable. And so I love that part of any part of our career and just finding an opportunity to apply that. I really like the journey that you've been on from an operations role to, you know, ultimately leading sales teams. And it's a very interesting route to me. You know, sometimes you get operations folks that are very analytical and to the point where it's almost, you don't get the maybe more human and raw side that you get in sales. And with that in mind, for for folks that are listening that are interested in ascending to more senior leadership roles, what would your advice be to them? Find a really, really good mentor. One of the things that the process that I typically would go through in mentoring and the way I've mentored is regardless of the function, I don't mentor only salespeople. I'll mentor people in marketing, in product development, in R&D, people in partner. He goes like, it doesn't matter what role you're in. Every single person who's looking for a mentor is looking for a way to develop their career. What does my future career roadmap look like? How should I think about my career? They've seen my successes and they want to know how'd you get there? What does the roadmap look like? And so that's the initial conversations. I typically mentor people for a year and we meet on a monthly basis. And it's, there's preparation that I focus people on. One is, I would say the first two or three months is really identifying what you want to do, like really being introspective. People typically come in and go, no, yeah, I know what I want to do. But when I start asking the insightful questions, they're clear that they don't, because I'll say like, okay, send me across what your career looks like. What it, when you would think about your career and your vision, if you already have that in mind, send me a document that says what that career roadmap looks like. And invariably, people are like, ah, I don't have it written down. I don't really know. How can I know what that is? You have to think about it. You've got to think about what success looks like and then manifest itself in reality through your experience. And so that's that first two or three months is really a deep introspection of what it is that they want to achieve. And once they have that vision, let's say, for example, again, people in finance, if their aspiration is to become a CFO and today they're a mid-level manager, maybe they're a director or a senior director or even a VP, and they want to see that career and how they can aspire to be a CFO. What I typically do is say, look, let's go look at who do you have in mind that is like successful CFO. It could be at our own company, somebody that they aspire to be like that person who's already in the CFO role. It could be CFO at another company. It could be whatever, a very well-known CFO. And then I say, okay, so if you look at your career today, and you look at them, if they were to leave the company, if our own CFO was to leave the company, who would take their place and why? And once you kind of look at that and you say, okay, well, there's actually a pretty natural career path. If you're a CFO, you have to have experience in financial planning and accounting, FP&A. You have to have experience in treasury. You have to have experience with private equity if you're sponsored in private equity. You have to have experience in treasury. Like all those different functions of a CFO, you need to have experience in those things. So now once you realize that the person who replaces the CFO is somebody who's had those experiences, then the job that you have in your own personal environment is to go get those experiences. What I found is there's people that have been a VP for 10 years and they're like, I'm not moving up. I don't understand why. And when I look back at decisions that they've made in their career, it's like they went to marketing and they went to sales and they went to partners and there were VP across different groups, but they didn't do it with purpose or with intent. And so, of course, their career is going to you know, sputter because they're not thoughtful in what those experiences are. They're just like, well, I get tired of doing what I was doing and I really just wanted to have something different. And somebody came to me and said that there was this opportunity that seemed like it was a good thing to do. So I kind of went and did it. That's where your career is managing you. You're not managing your career. So I would spend time with people around what does that path look like? Let's make sure that you have experience in accounting and own FP&A and treasury and everything else. Or give you the private equity experience or the budgeting and planning, those kind of things. And once we kind of map out what those different uh, functional areas are, then what I would do is I would introduce them to the CFO. Like at SAP, you know, Werner Brandt was a CFO for a long time. I would just go introduce them to, to Werner. Now, they'd be a mid-level VP. And of course, I had a relationship with our CFOs at different companies, but I would expose them to them. One is I would say, I want you to not only go meet with them, but I want you to present your plan. 
that whole plan that you have, your outlook, your career, the development, the things that we've been talking about over 9, 10, 11 months, I want you to present that to our CFO or to our CMO or to our whatever, right? Whatever it is that they aspired to be. By exposing them to that and for them presenting that path, that career plan to what they aspire, they now have a roadmap. And the other thing they get is they now have exposure because now the CFO knows this is an up and comer. This is somebody who aspires to be CFO. This is somebody who wants experience in as a VP of FP&A or accounting or whatever, treasury, all those different functions. And so when the job opening comes up, the first person they think about is that person because they know that that's their aspirational path. And so I know people get frustrated when they say, wow, a job opening happened, but they already had somebody that they wanted to hire. It was a friend. It was another colleague. That's why. That's why. Because their network was expanded to include those executives and those, that exposure and them presenting their plan gives them an opportunity to capitalize on that position. And now once they're on that path and they're getting all these things, now they have a career-oriented mindset. They know exactly what they want to do. And the way to be successful, the way to move into that CFO role is to be successful in each of those different functional areas. So you go in with that mindset knowing that here's my end goal, here's my end vision, here's what I want to do, and here's how I'm going to get there. You now have a path. So you have the mindset, you have the opportunity, you have the path, and then it just comes down to execution. So when I mentor people, we go through that whole process, all those different stages of evolution. And because I have a broad network of people, I can expose them to the people that they typically want to be exposed to. And that's, again, I get so much pleasure. I get as much out of it as they do. Each of those different mentees that I've had, I get as much out of those conversations as they do. And so it is not completely altruistic, but it's very pay it forward in terms of the way I approach things, because I've had so many great mentors who've helped me along the way. And as I thought about career paths and development, that's how I thought about it. And that's how I was able to capitalize on it. So I just try to expose that to as many people as I can, which again, this podcast, I'm sure that there's people out there that are listening that are like, I get it. And what I've said is not like, it's not like people haven't thought about these things. It's that they haven't done the work to really be as introspective and to really do that. They just think, of course, these all things seem natural to you, but people just don't do it. They don't do the work. And so I try to help them kind of focus on that work. Just a quick reminder, and then we will be right back to the show. At Revenue Insights, our goal is to share how top-performing revenue leaders build predictable, efficient, go-to-market teams. Every week, we speak to the brightest minds, and every quarter, we release the latest findings from our analysis of billions of dollars in pipeline. If you don't want to miss out, sign up to our newsletter at ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. That's ebster.com forward slash newsletter dash sign up. The link to make that a little bit easier for you will be in the show notes of this episode wherever you're listening. See you there. I love how uh, simple it is. And you you actually called it out, right? Where it seems obvious, but a lot of the time we don't necessarily really put the thought into exactly what we want that to look like. And what was coming up for me that I just quickly want to touch on is... uh, I think there's one side where I completely agree, which is, you know, having a roadmap and knowing where you want to get to. And then you're kind of working backwards of, okay, I'm going to need to do this, 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 and this. There is also, and I'd love to get your perspective on it, the soft skills that go with that, right? That aren't necessarily in a job description. I kind of touched on it with the first question, which is, you know, in an operations role, if you can do a lot of these analytical tasks, fantastic. Going into a leadership role, all of a sudden, you need to be a great communicator, you need to be a great motivator, so on and so forth. So what's your advice generally in those situations? Because sometimes some people just suit certain roles. And sometimes that roadmap requires them to develop those other skills. Do you factor that into it? Or I'd love to get your point of view. Yeah, look, I'm going to be a first time CEO. So I have to consider who do I know that has been a first time CEO? And now maybe they're a second or a third time CEO. So I try to leverage that network and talk about their experience. I try to learn from them. What are the failures that they made? What are the things that they learned from? So I think we all need a mentor, regardless of who you are. We all need a mentor because there's people that have trodden the path already. 
and they've already had that experience. And why go it on your own? Like, why not leverage other people's experiences? That's why people feel compelled to teach, or they feel compelled to write a book, or they feel compelled to do a podcast. It's all to help other people and to share your experiences and what other people can glean from those experiences. Look, if I've helped anybody think about their career, then this is a successful podcast to me. Like it's worth my time spending that just thinking of how I can help other people. And so I think those are soft skills that I've certainly developed over a career, but it's also something that not everybody approaches things as a servant leader. Like I've had CEOs who I consider more toxic, where they like to scream and yell and, you know, pound their fist. And that doesn't inspire people the way that I think about that's not going to motivate and drive people. You may have people that are afraid of you that are fearful, but you're not motivating people. And you're not going to look back on their career and think, wow, I learned so much from that person. What you learn is what not to do in my experience, because that's not the type of leader I am. I'd rather be more of that servant leader that I'm talking about and going out and serving people, finding opportunities to help other people. And the more people who are successful around you, the more success you're going to see. Because as a CEO, like I can't be successful unless everybody around me is successful. So I need to find ways to help them be successful. It could be, again, product oriented. It could be sales operational, you know, things. It could be defining new territories. It could be going to market in new regions. It could be focusing on an industry. It could be transitioning from on-premise to cloud. Having done all of those things, like that's why I feel like the potential is there. And if you have the positive mindset and you marry that with the potential, I think great things can happen. And so that's where I feel like it's, those are a ton of soft skills that we all need, but the best thing to do is find somebody who has those skills and then talk to them and mentor with them and identify ways that they were able to be successful. Certainly none of us are perfect and we all have flaws and weaknesses, but I think if we're all out to help each other, if we're finding opportunities to serve one another, regardless of the role that you're in, that's where you get the most uh, happiness. That's where happiness is derived, is from helping other people. Love that. Last question, Stephen, and if anyone's watching on YouTube, I feel like you'll, they'll know that you're ready for this question. What is one book that you would recommend to other revenue leaders? And that could be fiction, nonfiction, however you want to take it. I can only take it one direction, which is nonfiction, because I don't spend a lot of time with fiction. It's more just the interest. Like I love biographies. I am a huge, huge Abraham Lincoln fan. So I think there's my favorite book is probably A Team of Rivals, but I don't know. I've read countless numbers of books on Lincoln. If you look in my office, for example, right across the table there is Portrait of Lincoln. Like I'm a huge Abraham Lincoln fan. So anything that is Abraham Lincoln-esque regarding the Civil War, regarding all aspects of humanity, I think he was just an incredible, incredible uh, leader and person. He was definitely a man of the people and invited people into the White House and like was just constantly surrounding himself with just the everyday person. And I love that. Like, I love that part of Lincoln. The book that I just finished yesterday was Man's Search for Meaning from Dr. Finkel. So if you, I mean, now millions and millions of copies have been sold, but to me, Man's Search for Meaning goes to a lot of what I was just talking about. It's it goes to the humanity of things, of where people find happiness. Of course, his experience talks about being in Auschwitz and going through all of that, where one in 23 people survive. Those are pretty incredible odds. And so just learning from his experience and how he approaches things and his approach to psychology and how he's, I mean, just an amazing, amazing person. And it's a relatively easy read. I think, you know, you can read it in, in a few hours, but the deep meaning that I was able to, again, glean from that book, it just had my mind reeling, which is probably why I'm talking so much about helping other people and finding happiness. That, that really truly is the meaning of life. We're all here on earth for purpose. And I think finding that purpose, finding that meaning is extremely important. And the earlier we find it in our life, the more comfortable we are with whatever life throws at us, whether you're in his experiences where, you know, facing death, or you're challenged with any set of easy tasks. We all have different things, issues, problems that we all have to face. 
But I think helping each other through those things is the most important thing that we can do. I can second that recommendation just for the perspective that it offers you. You know, even when it's a great read, particularly when times are tough and when times are challenging and and often it leaves you in a almost a gray place. And then it offers a completely different perspective on it, which is how much we are able to overcome, how much we are able to endure. And really that point that you make, which I think really came out through what you've been saying over the last 10 to 15 minutes or so around understanding your purpose, understanding where you want to get to and really driving towards that. And it's probably a lot of it is understanding who you are and playing to those strengths as opposed to perhaps playing someone else's game, right? I would concur. That's that's an excellent recommendation. Look, I guess the last thing on because I think it's important is for me personally, I believe in God. And regardless of what people think about, I believe that our life is eternal, that it will last forever and it's infinite. And I think with that mindset of thinking about life being eternal, it creates an opportunity for us to really focus on the things. That's, I think, why I have the mindset of helping other people and gleaning as much happiness as I can from that. Because when you think about eternal life and that we're all from the same Heavenly Father, I think it's important to take that perspective into business as well. I can't separate it. They're inextricable in my man's search for meaning and the purpose of life and our professional life, our families. All of those things are extremely important to us, but it's also important to other people. And I think when you believe in eternal life, when you believe in God, it gives you that perspective that my time here on earth, while it may be short, life is eternal. And I want to make sure that I take the most advantage of the time that I have while I'm here. That's what I believe our purpose in life is, is to learn and to grow and to create a relationship with God, even though we can't see him even though we can't see that, we still have the spirit uh, within us. And I think our spirits are what is motivating and driving a lot of us who are God-fearing, who uh, want to be the best possible people we can, because that's why we're here. And that's why I think it's important to have that perspective on things. And professional life is it's important to be successful there because we want to provide for our families and everything else. But at the end of the day, we all need to focus on each other. That is a wonderful note for us to close on. Thank you. Stephen, it's been an absolute pleasure. For anyone listening who perhaps wants to follow you, connect, maybe even ask for a little bit of mentorship, where can they find you? LinkedIn is the easiest thing. It's linkedin.com in slash birdsall. My cell phone number is plus one six five zero seven nine nine seven eight one four. People are free to call and text me. Like I literally am totally open and transparent. And uh, I love to help people. So anybody who reaches out will get a response. And I, again, just, I thrive on those conversations. So whatever I can do to help anybody in the audience, if I've kind of piqued their curiosity or hit a nerve, I'd love even to talk about things like my relationship with God to my professional experience and to anything in between. I'm a pretty open book. So happy to chat with anybody about anything. Fantastic. I'll include uh links down to that in the show notes before if anyone didn't quite catch that excellent Stephen. thank you so much again for your time as i say it's been an absolute pleasure and for everyone listening this week we'll catch you next week thank you thank you cheers thanks for listening to revenue insights if you want to learn more subscribe to our newsletter and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox if you have any questions feel free to connect with us on linkedin our links will be in the episode notes See you next week.